Hello, and welcome to Bardcast, the Shakespeare podcast. First of all, I'd like to apologize for the extremely long delay between this episode and the previous episode. We don't really have a good excuse for it. I accept your apology. (laughs) I mean, we've had some problems scheduling the meeting, but largely it's just been a lack of initiative. And so we're sorry about that. But the quickest way to make amends is to proceed to the play, so we're doing that now. Unfortunately, we're doing measure for measure, so we'll have to apologize again after this is over. Ooh, well, controversial. We'll get to that. So, I'm Carson. And I'm Jeff. And as Jeff did say, this episode is measure for measure. Mm-hmm. This play is commonly classified as a comedy. It is classified as a comedy in uh, the first folio, and the traditional definition of comedy, where everything works out all right, does apply to this play. But it is also one of the problem plays that more kind of Shakespeare's later comedies that are less funny throughout and are more just dramatic plays with happy endings. There are parts in this that are very not funny and actually oddly cruel for a play that mm-hmm. is generally lighthearted. So the plot of this story is drawn from a couple things fr- that Shakespeare would have been aware of. It's basically two different stories that he would have been able to have access to kind of knit together. Mm -hmm. to be more interesting. Neither of them is anything that anyone has heard of. So this is another one of the plays that only exists in the first folio. We have no other recordings of it. It's thought that the first folio recording is some sort of hodgepodge, where possibly they had multiple different actors' copies, Mm -hmm. and possibly even that someone had edited it before it got to the first folio. There is no way that we can find out what the original text would have looked like except for extremely imprecise unscientific guesswork so all that we can Mm -hmm. do is identify some spots that look odd for shakespeare this is not one of the famous shakespeare plays no i mean if you were listing all the shakespeare plays you had heard of this would probably not be in the top 50 percent right and the critics don't generally look upon this with that much favor it's got some good stuff in it but no one says it's one of his masterpieces Mm -hmm. Right, so what is this play about? And there's a lot of things it's about. Justice. Right, it's all about the law and enforcing the law and, and kind of how that applies between the difference between like what the law actually says and what is ethical to enforce about the law. Mm-hmm. And from there it also is about uh, hypocrisy. Right, I think that's kind of the key central point about this, how, how the law as it's strictly written and enforced, kind of makes hypocrites of us all, because we don't actually follow the law strictly, we follow the spirit of the law, the ethics of the law. Looking at this play, there's really very few characters that are just perfectly wholesome and good. Yeah, and there's this entire thing about where you put your loyalty, uh, whether you put it to yourself or to your faithfulness, to your religion and your ethics and whether you put it like value your friends or your family higher than you do yourself that sort of thing Mm -hmm. but really the the essential part of this play is the hypocrisy of laws that govern sexual conduct that's really what the play is about yeah right so warning right away if you have any kids who are listening to this and I can't imagine they would be, (laughs) but if they are... You should have probably stopped them about 30 seconds ago. Right. The play does talk about sex, and it does have puns based on sexual mechanics. So that is a questionable content for a child. So, to summarize the play, uh, first of all, there's this kind of concept that's been more popular in historical stuff than it is nowadays, where a ruler, typically a king or some sort of autocrat like that. In this case, a duke. The duke realizes that no one really appreciates them, or a king realizes that no one appreciates them. So they decide to leave, just give up being the king, and Mm -hmm. then 
things go crazy in their absence. Yeah, everything is terrible, and everyone's like, oh, why didn't our king come back? Right, and then the king comes back, which was always the plan. They they pretend that it was permanent, but they always intended to come back once people learn to appreciate them. Mm-hmm. In this, the duke has a similar idea to what historical kings have done. He want, The duke wants to go away so that his ministers can enforce all the laws that have been technically on the books but have been unenforced. If the duke were to simply say, okay, today is the day, I am going to kill everyone that is being infidelitous or is in any way having sex before marriage. It would be seen, seen as tyrannous. But if he has someone else take over for a while, enforce the laws, then kind of step into that position that has been already established, mm-hmm. it's safer. He's also trying to test out his subordinate to see if he's actually qualified to lead. Right. Angelo, who is one of the most important characters in this play, is the person who takes over while the Duke is away. And this is a test of his sterling reputation. Everyone regards Angelo as, if not perfect, then beyond question. Yeah, he is incorruptible, supposedly. Right. The very first scene of the play is recommending him as a perfect civic functionary and ethically unquestionable. So, since it is his job to enforce the law, Angelo does just that. He he Mm -hmm. prosecutes many people and tears down many uh, houses of prostitution, which Mm -hmm. is technically what the law is. He is following the law when he does that. Yeah. And then, to kick off the events of this play, he also arrests a man who had slept with his own fiancée. Right. And thereby illegally gotten her pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so this man is sentenced to die. The man's sister... Isabella, probably the protagonist of the play, I think most people could agree. Is a nun. Right. About to be a nun. Right. She's a uh, initiate, I think, or something like right. that? Right. The only reason that she can meet with men is because she isn't completely a nun yet. The organization, in its purest form, does not in any way deal with men. Mm-hmm. So, she can go to Angelo, the person in charge, and beg for the, the security and freedom of this person who must die according to the law. Yeah. And that's kind of the key element of this entire thing. Angelo and the law say he must die. Isabella and common sense and pity and humanity say that he must live. Angelo, who is not turned by anything that ordinary people are turned by, falls in love with Isabella precisely because of her purity and her ethicality and her unwillingness to sacrifice herself. And it makes an indecent proposal that if she has sex with him, he will free her brother. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she refuses him, of course. Right. And you get this in kind of crazy <laughs> resolution of the whole thing, where it turns out that the Duke, who supposedly had left the city entirely, has actually been lurking around dressed as a monk. Mm-hmm. And he arranges everything so that Angelo ends up secretly uh, having sex with someone that he had promised to marry years ago, but had abandoned when it turned out that she wouldn't have any money. Mm -hmm. So we kind of establish Angelo as a bit of a jerk and say, okay, well, you can have sex with this person who, by having sex with you, are actually fulfilling your marriage. It's sort of a medieval thing Yeah, that this kind of tops off the marriage. I guess we now call it consummating the marriage. Yes, tops off. (laughs) Right. Um, It's like renewing a cell phone. Mm -hmm. So this entire idea of a, quote, bed trick is much more common in the past where if someone wanted to have sex with you for some immoral reason, you could secretly replace them and have it in a dark room so that they would have sex with someone else. In this case, someone that they theoretically should be having sex with. But ethically, and most of the time legally, this is rape, so do not 
pretend you are someone else to have sex. It is wrong. Yes, I hope our audience didn't need, actually need to hear that. That's a good point. But it is not like a college prank, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It is bad. This play is set in Vienna, capital of Austria. Right, but it doesn't matter. At that time, matter. yeah. The setting, like with most Shakespeare plays, the setting does not matter at all. There is a thought that whoever might have edited this before it got to the first folio might have changed it from being in Italy. This is particularly noticeable by all the Angelos, Lucios, Isabella... It doesn't mm-hmm. feel very Austrian, at least in terms of the name. That's true. They do border. There's really no evidence about it, and it doesn't particularly feel Viennese or Italian, or if you had put it in Eng- England, you would have only had to change the names. But you can't set stuff like this in England, because then people will be like, what? Crazy stuff like that doesn't happen in England. That's totally Italian. <laughs> so, as we mentioned earlier, the main character of this play is Isabella. A novice nun and sister of Claudio. Right. Claudio is the man who must be executed for having sex with his basically own wife, Juliet. And Isabella is unrelentingly pure and unwilling to sacrifice her ethics to save his bro- her brother's life, which we'll get to actually going through the play later. There's some great dialogue about that. Lucio is Claudio's kind of best friend and kind of a go-between between several of the characters. He also is probably a pimp. Right. Lucio is kind of the voice of reason throughout, who kind of represents what should be done. He's also kind of a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Like most characters in this play. Right. Angelo, like we said, is the person who takes over the city in the absence of the Duke. He is very pure, and everyone acknowledges that, and it is only the purity of Isabella that tempts him at all, and that twists him in the way that he is tortured by. He he Mm -hmm. realizes that it is wrong, what he is doing. He can't help himself. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned, he has a fiancé that he rejected. And that's Mariana. Right. Then he has some employees, like the provost, who doesn't yeah. matter. Well, the, the weird thing about the provost is he has like more lines than just about any unnamed character in a Shakespeare play. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Because he's in like almost every prison scene, and he takes active part in many of the uh, Duke's crazy schemes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that takes us to the Duke himself, who is active throughout in almost every part mm-hmm. of the plot. Either as the Duke or as the friar he's pretending to be. Right, he pretends to be this friar who has a lot of time on his hands Mm -hmm. and just goes around consoling people and tricking people into doing what he wants. And there's Aeschylus, who is basically just the Duke's standard wise counselor type person who can't seem to figure out that it's the Duke even when he's just got a robe on instead of a crown. And then there's a bunch of commoners. Right. Shakespeare likes this entire, you've got the high-up folk, and you've got the ordinary kind of folk, and then you've got the low-class folk who are much more fun. Mm, Well, not in this case, but... Oh, they're fun. I don't like them. Anyway. Yeah, they include uh, Overdone, who is a madam... Right. A.K.A. proprietor of a brothel. Right. She is literally overdone. She's had seven husbands, and and this is, would have been a pun at the time that she had been overdone. Uh, there's Elbow, who is a standard stupid uh, constable. Right. He's the Shakespearean stupid character who mistakes words for other words, as we've seen in many a previous play. He's, he's like a low-rent dogberry. Exactly. He uh, is almost exactly that, now that you mention it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Peter, who is a friar who is kind of 
the Duke's like costume supplier, I guess. <laughs> right, he's just another character to kind of keep the Duke going. And then there's Pompey, who is even worse of a clown than whatever last time I said was the worst clown. <laughs> <laughs> right. Pompey is mainly only interesting in the historical references that he evokes. Although Pompey seems unaware of it, he is named, presumably, after Pompey Magnus, the person who ruled Rome just before Julius Caesar took over and fought Julius Caesar in the Civil Wars. And People, the person making fun of Pompey repeatedly points out that he will be a Caesar to this Pompey, who mm. never seems to catch the reference. And finally, there's uh, Barnardine, who is a drunken prisoner. Who has only one scene, but is quite amusing. Okay, so, let's start at Act 1. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a neat part of Act 1, Scene 1, where the Duke is telling Angelo that he has to take this position as the Duke's representative, saying that, Heaven doth with us as we with torches do, not light them for ourselves. For if our virtues did not go forth of us, t'were all alike as if we had them not. So heaven uses us like we use torches, where we use torches for light. They use us to display our virtues, so that our virtues go from us and actually do something. If we merely have passive virtues, we might as well not have them. Which reminds me of Twelfth Night, where in reference to the guy's dancing skill, saying, oh, I would dance all the time. Is this a world to hide virtues in? Mm -hmm. Shakespeare seems to have this kind of, um, I don't know if you want to call it Catholic or anything, the idea of acts are important in terms of our... And of course, not only Catholics believe that you should <laughs> yeah. be a good person, but it's that sort of, what matters is what you do, and you should act in a good way, in addition to simply being good, which is meaningless by itself. But this scene is basically just setting up the Duke is leaving and putting Angelo in charge. Right. So scene two is basically just some interplay between Lucio and Overdone where eventually we find out that Claudio has been arrested. This is setting up the scenes for the poor class and the ordinary people. And we've got some fun stuff with Mistress Overdone who is asking about why Claudio is going to be sent to prison to die which Pompey says, groping for trouts in a peculiar river. That probably is a really weird metaphor, but I don't really want to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> but basically anything in this play uh, that Pompey says, or Mr. Soberdon says, it can be followed by, that's what she said. <laughs> right, it, it is a lot of uh, puns in that sense. And like we said earlier, Claudio is essentially married. And it is very common to have this sort of sex before marriage. He just couldn't afford the actual marriage license. Essentially, yeah. So no one in any reasonable mind would accuse them of anything or have a problem with it. And they uh, run into Claudio being called off to prison and go like, why are you getting called to prison? And he explains what's going on and sends uh, Lucio to go help out, find his sister and bring her into beg for his life. Right. In reference to the evidence that they have been having sex, he says, but it chances the stealth of our most mutual entertainment with character too gross is writ on Juliet. That is, she is pregnant. Yep. I just love that sort of writing. Scene three is the friar and the duke. The duke explains his secondary plan to pretend to be a friar mm -hmm. in the city. And find out if Angela is actually that great. Right. Scene four establishes the entire Isabella. is a nun. Yeah, and her role in this entire thing, that uh, she'll be trying to ple plead for Claudio's life. So, that brings us to Act 2, which is... Where a lot of the uh, dramatic stuff happens, yeah. before we start getting into shenanigans again. This is the good stuff. It starts out with some goofiness where Elbow 
has some silly misspeakings. He says that um, he is bringing before your honor two notorious benefactors instead of malefactors. He says that he detests his wife before heaven and your honor, that he detests her and that he detests himself. Yeah, it's, you know, just nonsense. Right. And then, actually, there is an extremely long dialogue where... Pompey decides that he will tell a story that has no apparent purpose or meaning about how someone was pregnant, she wanted stewed prunes. Where any of this is going, we literally never find out, because after an extremely long dialogue, they basically say, okay, let's get to the point and talk about what we're actually here for. Mm -hmm. I honestly wonder what the function of this is. Filler. Right. Shakespeare got paid by the word. <laughs> well, I don't think that, but I do wonder if they were stalling for time for some reason, or if they just felt like this part was too serious, and so they needed just some silliness to counter it out. I honestly don't know. Pompey does have one good point. Essentially, everyone violates this law against infidelity. And so that he's he should have to arrest everybody, basically. Right. If you head and hang, that is, kill, all that offend that way, but for ten years together, you'll be glad to give out commission for more heads. If they hold the law for ten years, they'll be able to rent the fairest house in the entire city for threepence. Because everyone will be dead. Everyone will be dead if we just enforce this law. Aeschylus asks Pompey, like, why he can, feels he can get along by promoting prostitution. How would you live, Pompey, by being a bod? What do you think of the trade, Pompey? Is it a lawful trade? And Pompey simply simply says, if the law would allow it, sir. (laughs) That is a good bit. And that unless they um, neuter everyone in the city, then everyone will do it. Mm -hmm. And this seems to be the actual position of Shakespeare, that this sort of law is simply irrational. Next scene is where we start getting into the... uh really good stuff yeah scene two is the serious business where there's essentially no jokes it's just isabella has come to angelo to beg for her brother's life right it is a very passionate and very cool scene between these two ends of the spirit of what law and justice are where isabella is saying that let his fault die not the brother you know hate the sinner not the sin that's (laughs) <laughs> the sin, not the sinner, that sort of thing. Angelo points out, every fault's condemned, ere it be done, that he wouldn't really have a job if all he did was just attack the sins themselves. The best part about this scene, I think, is that it's it's all Isabella t- talking to Angelo, explaining why she should uh, spare her life, but the whole time Lucio is standing there whispering, good job, keep it up. Right. That's very odd to me, this entire coaching where he says, oh, you're being too cold, be more be more close to him, be more direct, be more warm. It seems like this scene would work better without him at all. I know, it's, he's only there, like, just to basically say, keep it up, keep it up, good, good, okay, no, too much, too much. <laughs> Pull back. Um, yeah. Isabella and Angelo both have great dialogue in this scene. I- Isabella says, no ceremony that... That to great one belongs, not the king's crown, not the deputed sword, the marshal's truncheon, or the judge's robe, become them with one half so good a grace as mercy does, that mercy is the greatest emblem of power in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, That she would like to be a judge and show him what the meaning of mercy was. Mm -hmm. Which is foreshadowing... (laughs) 
in reference to Jesus, she says, Why, all the souls that were forfeit once, and he that might the vantage best have took, found out the remedy. How would you be, if he, which is atop the seat of judgment, should but judge you as you are? Oh, think on that, and mercy then will breathe within your lips, like man new-made. Which reminds me, of course, of the Merchant of Venice. The quality of mercy is not strained. That speech mm-hmm. at the end of the Merchant of Venice. Yeah. Isabella asks, show some pity, Angelo says. I show it most of all when I show justice. Mm-hmm. And Angelo basically at the end is like, okay, we'll talk again tomorrow. Right. But once she leaves, he goes quite a bit farther than that and reveals to the audience, because there's no one else there, that he has fallen for her completely. Oh, cunning enemy that, to catch a saint, with saints dost bait thy hook. So, calling himself a saint most immodestly, saying that uh, the saint, that is her, is the only thing that could have caught him. Most dangerous is that temptation that doth goad us on to sin in loving virtue. Never could the strumpet, with all her double vigor, art, and nature, once stir my temper, but this virtuous maid subdues me quite. Ever till now, when men were fond, I smiled and wondered how. It's a dangerous temptation because it's specifically that he loves virtue, that he wants to forsake his virtue. Yeah. That immoral woman could never tempt him. And he mentions at the end that when men were fond, when they were in love, he never really understood until now. Mm-hmm. And then the next scene is just uh, the Duke in disguise coming to talk to Juliet. Right. He's kind of figuring out what's going on throughout. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the next meeting between Angelo and Isabella, which is the creepy one. (laughs) (laughs) Right. This is um, a much darker version of basically the previous scene where previously she had been petitioning him, but now he is petitioning her. At first, she either pretends, but I think she sincerely does not realize what he is proposing. Mm. He kind of seems to think that she's being deliberately misunderstanding, but he's being so obtuse about it. Because he doesn't really want to come out and say it because he's so virtuous. Right. He says that because the law has said this, that this man must die... Wouldn't you be virtuous in committing a sin to save his life? And she simply doesn't understand or pretends to. And eventually he does come out and says, No earthly means to save him, but that either you must lay down the treasures of your body to this supposed, or else let him suffer. What would you do? And then she says, basically, no. (laughs) But uh, she actually says, Better it were a brother died at once than that a sister, by redeeming him, should die forever. Basically saying that, sure, he might die when you kill him, but at least he'll go to heaven. Right. And at least I'll go to heaven. But if I do this for you, then we're both going to hell. Mm -hmm. She implies that maybe this is just some sort of test of her virtue, that this is some sort of trick. And also goes on to say that uh, she'll tell everyone what he's just proposed. And he simply points out that he has a perfect reputation. She's in a terrible position where she would probably do anything to try to save her brother, so no one would ever believe him. Say what you can, my false or ways your true. Mm-hmm. And then she, ha- after he leaves, she has a soliloquy like, well, who can I tell about this, basically? Right, and hating the tragedy of it all. But then there's the key line of her character, more than our brother is our chastity. Mm -hmm. So this isn't a matter of her being tempted or her weighing things throughout the play or her changing her mind. This is a matter of her saying, looking at, you know, a graph and saying, well, my chastity is worth this and my brother is worth less. 
And mm-hmm. this is a perfectly reasonable and rational decision for a person to make in this sort of Christian context of my virtue is worth everything, far more than my life or his life. Although it does seem cold to us now, of course. And she says, my brother will understand this as well, and so I will go to him to... Explain what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. And then we get back to the next act. Right. Act three... Um, this is where the shenanigan restarts. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is the Duke in his element proper. He goes to Claudio, who believes that he must die. I think the Duke, even at this point, has decided that no one will die. But instead of comforting people, the Duke tells Claudio, be absolute for death. Just believe that you will die. Be resigned to that. And therefore, if you die, you won't be surprised. And if you live, you'll be extremely happy because it was great. Mm-hmm. Either death or life shall thereby be the sweeter. Right, exactly. Really, this entire speech right at the beginning of the scene one, act three, has a lot of great lines. If thou art rich, thou art poor, for, like an ass whose back with ingots bows, thou bearest thy heavy riches but a journey, and death unloads thee. So we have our money in the same sense that a horse would carry money from one place to another, but he doesn't get anything out of it. He is simply unloaded in the same way that death unloads us at the end of our lives. Mm-hmm. And Claudio basically agrees with him and says, you're right, you have, you've made several good right. points. Right, the Duke is very persuasive in this argument. I mean, it's not a terrible argument either, Right, and it's I a very mean. Christian, save-your-treasures-in-heaven sort of argument that would make sense mm-hmm. for the entire um, zeitgeist. And then Isabella shows up. She says basically what Angelo has offered. The twist here is that instead of him being okay with it... Well, he actually starts out okay with it, and then they they have a big sibling happy, like, reunion. Yeah. And he's like, that's fine. And then she starts leaving. He's like, wait, what about... What if you changed your mind? Yeah, as Claudio says, death is a fearful thing. Aye, but to die, and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction and to rot, this sensible warm motion to become a kneaded clod to go into the earth. And the delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods, or to reside in thrilling region of thick-ribbed ice, to be imprisoned in the viewless winds, and blown with restless violence round about the pendant world, or to be worse than worst of those that lawless and incertain thought imagine howling. Tis too horrible! The weariest and most loathed worldly life, that age, ache, penury, and imprisonment can lay on nature, is a paradise to what we fear of death. Sweet sister, let me live. And then she says, uh, basically, no. (laughs) Yeah, she goes completely against him. She has no sympathy for his position Mm -hmm. and calls him a beast, a coward, a wretch. Wilt thou be made a man out of my vice? Is it not a kind of incest to take life from thine own sister's shame? And then she says, I'll pray a thousand prayers for, for thy death. Pretty dramatic and doesn't feel very comedic which is one of the reasons they call this not a comedy. And then the Duke comes in and is like, I would like to talk to you, miss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's still in disguise, of course. Right. So the Duke reveals his the entire thing about Angelo having promised to marry someone, but not Mariana. going along with it. Yeah. Right. He, then he comes with his pl- bed trick, basically. And right. she, he tells Isabella, go tell Angelo you'll meet him in the dark. This scene is interrupted by another bit of goofiness, where it turns out that Pompey is arrested for theft. Mm-hmm. And uh, is dragged in by elbow. Right, and so it's kind of the contest of two fools. Mm-hmm. With the Duke also just standing there for some reason. There's a lot of silliness here that doesn't really 
do much of anything. Around the middle of it, Lucio is left alone with the Duke, and the Duke basically asks him, So, what have you heard about the Duke? Right, this is where Lucio has his real business, where he implies or says about everything horrible you could say about the Duke, right to the Duke's face, just not realizing mm-hmm. it. Saying that some report a sea maid spawned him, some that he was begot between two stockfishes. <laughs> Lucio does tell the Duke that he and the Duke have a- are actually good buddies have been gone out drinking and uh, wenching a lot. Right, saying that the Duke violates the very law that is the center of this entire play. Mm-hmm. And then he just goes on and on, constantly bad-mouthing the Duke. Like, he's my great buddy, but what an idiot. Yeah, and like all secret characters, the Duke says, I don't know that he isn't right around here. That sort of thing. Oh, you hope the Duke will return no more. You imagine me too unhurtful and opposite. But indeed, I can do you little harm. Uh, Lucio says, I'll be hanged first. (laughs) We see Mistress Overdone also is put in prison, just walking past, because they're kind of hanging out in the prison. And then Duke, as the friar, goes to talk to his old best friend, Aeschylus who, of course, does not recognize him. At the very end, he does a little jig and says, this is my plan, ha ha ha. The ending of this scene, Act 3, Scene 2, is odd little speech by the Duke where he talks in an odd number of syllables. He talks in eight syllables for each line, which is unusual for Shakespeare and particularly for this play. It's thought that this is one of those things that might be added in by another person. Mm -hmm. Because it's basically just expanding on plot that's already happened or is going to happen. Although, to be fair, that happens a lot in this play. There's a lot of recapping. Mm -hmm. And then we get on to Act 4, where uh, we get to hang out with Mariana. Right. Uh, Scene 1 is just establishing who Mariana is. You know, we meet her for the first time. They introduce Isabella to her. Yeah, the Duke explains what the entire plan is, and they all agree to do it. Mm -hmm. So Scene 2 takes us to some more silliness. Uh, we get to meet the executioner, and Pompey has made assistance to the executioner, and they are going to execute uh, Claudio and Barnardine. Right, the executioner is embarrassed that he would have someone that is uh, so lewd work for him that he will discredit our craft. So <laughs> executioners were so well regarded. A note arrives from Angelo that is, in fact, not a pardon, but is... Uh, an execution order to execute Claudio immediately. Right, they had done all of these shenanigans just so that Claudio wouldn't die, and then it turns out that Angelo takes advantage of this woman and then cheats the system and still orders the man to die, which I think is kind of the real turning point for Angelo. Where he's no longer, you know... Even sympathetic. Right. Not that he really was earlier, but... Well, I know that we got a comment ages ago when we talked about Angelo being a villain where a person said that he was an ethical man who was torn by his faults, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to blame someone for being taken over by their weaknesses. I disagree. But regardless, um, that argument is a lot stronger before he... You know, reneges on this deal and decides to have someone killed despite mm-hmm. ruining someone's innocence for that agreement. The Duke discusses with the prison guard, we, I want you to not do this, actually. Right. In addition to the bed trick where they swap out two lovers, they also decide that they're going to swap out two heads, that they mm-hmm. will decapitate another man, a man who, who does not mind dying. They specifically say, in what seems to be torture to me, that in the past they have presented him with the claim that he will be executed that day, and Barnardine did not mind, and then they just didn't, because apparently they're running some psychological torture chamber in this time. It's a really confusing 
subplot because the character himself is entirely irrelevant and his execution is mostly irrelevant too. And does not occur. Because in the next scene we find out he is too drunk to be executed. Right. When they point out that they don't actually look similar, the Duke points out, oh, death's a great disguiser. Okay, so that brings us to scene three. The Executioner and Barnardine. Right, there is some odd joking going on. This is the entire scene that we were just alluding to, where Barnardine is too drunk to be executed. An odd concept, but apparently, in this particular scenario, Barnardine can simply refuse to be executed. Yes. Um, They insist that it is time for him to die, and he says... Not I. I have been drinking hard all night, and I will have more time to prepare me, or they shall beat out my brains with billets. I will not consent to die this day, that's certain. I swear I will not die today for any man's persuasion, as they try to convince him that it would be a good idea for him to die. But he's like, but come back tomorrow and maybe I'll feel up to it. Right, and they actually, in all seriousness, he says, I am too drunk. They say, then it's the perfect time to die before you get a hangover. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's a pretty fun scene. The prison guard comes up to the Duke and says, Hey, good news, someone who actually looks a lot like Claudio... A pirate. ...just died of a fever, so why don't we just use his head? They do agree to do that. They'll have the head to convince Angelo that the man has been executed. Isabella shows up, and here's where the Duke reveals that he is a terrible person. Right, this is the really odd part. The Duke has convinced everyone that everything will be okay. And then Isabella shows up and he says, I've got some bad news. They just executed your brother. Right, Angelo has insisted that your brother die. That part is true. Angelo did go back on his word and insist that the brother die. But her brother is not dead and the Duke is telling her, your brother is dead for no reason. Yeah, and then later after she leaves, he's like, I did that mostly because I think she'll feel even happier when she finds out he's really alive. Right, this entire argument, like from before, where you should be totally for death so that either death or life will be better. This same idea of if you feel real bad, feeling good feels even better. Very odd emotional interpretation in this play. And then Lucio shows up again to badmouth the Duke some more. Yeah, Lucio is just digging his own grave throughout. It's a very humorous dynamic of Mm -hmm. the Duke just kind of being, I don't believe you, and Lucio's like, no, it's even worse than I'm saying. The Duke is horrible. And in this part, he's also telling the supposed friar, have I mentioned all these women I've knocked up? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, he does have a good bit. The Duke, as a friar, says uh, that he should go, and he says, oh, no, friar, I am a kind of burr. I shall stick. Right, that... Not only is Lucio, like, insulting, but he's also annoying. Yeah. And the Duke can't even get rid of him, (laughs) just to get him to stop talking. Yeah, scene four is Angelo and Aeschylus just setting the stage for act five. The Duke is returning. Yeah. And so they're going to have to be ready for that. Scene five and scene six are also just setting up act five. It's just a matter of everyone kind of saying, here's where we are. We're not going to say what's going to happen, but we're... Basically, it's just everyone saying, okay, we're all going to meet at the front gates at at dawn or whatever. Right, right. Which leads us to the final act and scene. Act five is entirely one scene. And a long one. It is a doozy. It's just so odd. (laughs) It just, yeah, so much happens in this that doesn't make sense. It's completely unnecessary. It's just the Duke making trouble for people mm-hmm. under this bizarre idea that if people feel horrible, like Isabella in particular is tortured in this, the previous act and this act. Yeah, so cause, so the Duke comes in into the city and Isabella runs up and says, Duke, Duke, Angelo is terrible. Look at Listen to all he's done to me. Even though the Duke knows Isabella is right, the Duke pretends to not have known anything that happens and simply insists that Angelo, being virtuous, must not have committed these sins. And you crazy... Isabella, like, has an emotional breakdown Mm -hmm. in front of the Duke, 
who is completely unmoved. Lucio, of course, takes advantage of this opportunity to make fun of the friar that the Duke was pretending to be. Yeah, he says, oh, this terrible friar I was talking to, he's causing so much trouble. Right, and making fun of the Duke. Essentially, when Lucio had been saying all these horrible things about the Duke, now Lucio is saying that the friar was saying all these things. I don't know why. I guess Lucio is just an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) The Duke orders her arrested, but then uh, she says, wait, there's this friar I know. He can explain things. That's when Lucio takes his chance to accuse the friar of being a bad person. So this comes to the entire Mariana business, where Mariana is presented as this odd figure who would like to talk about the entire business. And the Duke asks her, is she married? Is she a maid? Is she a widow? Mariana says no to all of those. Duke says, why, you are nothing then, neither maid, widow, nor wife. Lucio points out, my lord, she may be a punk, for many of them are neither maid, widow, nor wife, uh, punk being prostitute. Mm-hmm. They are not maids, wi- widows, nor wives. Yeah, this, this plays very down to earth about sexuality. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel Shakespearean <laughs> mm-hmm. in that sense that we think of it. And she's basically there to try and convince Angelo to take her back, and also as part of the scheme. Right, it's this elaborate unveiling where she's introduced as not being any of the traditional things because she's only married in in the sense that they have secretly had sex. Which... And were engaged to be married, and then he broke it off because she lost all her money. Right. So now they're sort of married in this sort of odd medieval sense. So she's revealed, and Angelo is embarrassed. And the Duke's like, I've got to go somewhere, by the way. I'll be back soon. Right, it's like uh, Mrs. Doubtfire at this point. (laughs) Then this is where the Duke just completely loses all subtlety and starts saying things as the friar like, The Duke dare no more stretch this finger of mine than he dare rack his own. His subject am I not, nor here provincial. So if you haven't realized that he's the Duke, (laughs) it seems a little obvious. Yeah, but, you know, it's a Shakespeare play, and no one ever figures out who anyone in costume is in a Shakespeare play. Yeah, the Duke even points out that he loves the Duke as he loves himself. It's, yeah, and so they continue more shenaniganry, where once again, uh, Lucio is like, oh, this is that terrible friar I was telling you about. (laughs) And he's like, well, let me show everyone your face, and he pulls off his hood, and it's like, oh, you're the Duke. The Duke points out that is a strange person that can turn a friar into a Duke mm-hmm. all by himself. But Angelo eventually does confess to all of the business, and the Duke, being pretty mild, sentences him to marry Mariana proper. And then he says, and now that you're married, I'm going to execute you and Mariana will get all your stuff. (laughs) Because the Duke is still being horrible. (laughs) Well, to be fair, uh, Angelo is a criminal at this point. Right. And by Angelo's own laws, Angelo deserves to die. It's it's perfectly just to have him But he's horrible because he doesn't actually go through with it again. Well, yeah, but he only stops because Mariana convinces Isabella to beg the Duke for Angelo's life. And there we hark back to the second act when uh, Isabella is trying to explain to Angelo the value of mercy. Right, as though she could be the judge of him. Even though she believes that he has murdered her brother. At this point, uh, the Duke is like, by the way, guess who's alive? (laughs) And Claudio comes in with a bag on his head And there's a drum roll And they pull off the bag and ta-da It's very odd Yeah, I'm exaggerating only in the slightest amount Only in the drum roll part Also, and and then the Duke pardons Barnardine For no reason that I can figure out Right (laughs) And then he says, oh, and Lucio You have to marry that woman you knocked up Your Highness said even now I made you a Duke Good my lord, do not recompense repay me In making me a cuckold 
Because mm, he would have to marry a prostitute. The Duke says that he will forgive all the uh, slanders upon the Duke, but he will take him to prison and either see him die or see him married. And Lucio says, marrying a prostitute, my lord, is pressing to death, whipping, and hanging. And then the Duke says, slandering a prince deserves it. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Good point. The Duke just kind of has this final little speech saying... And everyone's married. Right, that everything is fine, everyone will be promoted if necessary. As though none of the horrible things had happened, it still pretends that it's a happy ending. And then he kind of obliquely proposes to Isabel. I have a motion much imports your good, whereto if you're willing, a willing ear inclined, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. And she does not respond. Yeah, it's all down to how it's performed on the stage. Yeah. A Shakespearean realist would probably say, yes, it's the end of a play. No one at the end of a Shakespeare play proposes marriage and gets shot down. Everything in her character, at least, would say she would shoot him down. Right, especially because she was trying to become a nun. Yeah, and that's still kind of important to her. Presumably. Yeah. Plus, he completely jerked her around with the whole Claudio thing. That's the craziest part. It has this completely unnuanced happy ending, even though he just put everyone through hell for his own amusements. Mm-hmm. He could have resolved things much earlier in a number of ways. Yeah, in the middle of Act 3, he could have said, okay, I'm done with these shenanigans. Angelo, you're going to prison. None of this needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And nothing would have been different because he runs the city. It's not like he reports to anyone. Like I was indicating earlier, I think that really Act 2, the scene where she's begging for his life, really hits some profound stuff. Mm-hmm. Is really great dialogue and really has a lot of opportunities for actors to blow out their emotions all over the stage. For that point in time, at least, it's a conversation between two people who actually are firmly believing what they're believing. Right. That are diametrically opposed to each other, but right. are both, I'm, I'm doing quote fingers here, good people. Right. There are two valid positions that people in real life hold, and it's a real debate between the two things. Mm-hmm. And it's full of real emotion. Yeah. Except for Lucio constantly going, come on, you can do better than this. <laughs> yeah, we saw a performance by 10,000 Things. Right. They're a very, I don't know if you want to call them indie. They're a very low budget, but very serious and very good organization. They use Shakespeare as, I don't know if you want to call it charity or public's works project or something. Yeah, they, they do performances in like prisons. Well, aside, prisons, homeless shelters, and also paying performances for people as well. Right. We went to a paid performance. We were not in prison at the time and I really you figured out the secret of our uh, oh yeah why we were off for six months <laughs> we were in prison watching uh... Measure for Measure over and over again yeah I think the real thing that endorses 10,000 Things is the fact that they don't have any special stuff. They don't have a stage. We were just in a flat room and we were on chairs. And, and there, it was a, com- a completely surrounded stage. Right. There were chairs on every side. Yeah, so they had no place that they could hide. They went to the corners of the room to change outfits and be mm-hmm. off stage. And people would like sit, just sit in the audience chairs when they were not acting. Right. And cut free of everything, including there's no microphones, makes it so they really have to act it and they really have to enunciate it, which is my thing with Shakespeare, that unless you say your words clearly, it is incomprehensible very quickly. If you lose just a few words, you can really lose track of what's going on. And they just nailed it. They also did a really good job with a minimalist set. They basically had, as a set, uh, a podium, a doorway. Yep. And, like, a gate. Yeah, some iron kind of Z-shapes that they could use as various objects, Mm -hmm. just whatever it needed to be. The costumes were, you know, just putting on a coat and hat, basically, or slicking back your hair and changing shirts. Right, a robe at most. Yeah, like, people could change which character they were very quickly. Mm -hmm. 
And that was really well done. I think that was the closest performance that we've seen to what Shakespeare would have actually been like. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Shakespeare did actually have a stage, but Shakespeare had no special effects other than trapdoors, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But certainly no amplification of voices. And the people were right there. They were right next to the stage and right next to the actors. And Shakespeare didn't have any backdrops. It was just two doors. Well, he might have had backdrops. Okay, all the stuff that we have indicates they had no backdrops. That's fair. We have a rendition of what Shakespeare's theater was like, and it's just two doors. Yeah, I really appreciate their group. I assume they've moved on to another play by now. If anyone has a chance to see the 10,000 things, I would really advise they do it. They're great. Yeah, our thoughts on the play. I think it's an okay play. It's not my favorite. It's not my least favorite play. Sure. So a good version, and I don't like the characters. Like <laughs> Watching the play, there are a few enjoyable characters. Isabella was amazing. Mm-hmm. She's... A, she she was well acted and she was a really good character too who doesn't have anyway she was a perfect character right. like she doesn't change throughout the play other than losing some faith in uh humanity yeah and being really upset about things but she's relatively the same person at the end that she was at the start uh, and then i really liked the prison guard i just thought for being a character who doesn't have a name at all he <laughs> had a surprising impact on the play right hate the duke i hate the duke so much right I basically agree with you on all of that. I think that Isabella can come off as a bit of a cold kind of statue person because especially in the scene where her brother is begging for his life and she turns angrily against him. That comes off as very cold to me. Mm-hmm. The way it was acted, at least, I th- it seemed right. realistic. A performance can definitely save it. Yeah. But it makes her less sympathetic. If she had said, okay, I understand that you're afraid, but we both know rationally that I can't do this, that would have been more sympathetic than simply saying, oh, I wish you would just die now. Mm -hmm. Rather than keep asking me to do this. Yeah, that's so harsh Mm -hmm. that it makes her a little less sympathetic. Yes, the Duke is horrible, unless you just don't believe that anyone has emotions. (laughs) Because he's just so cruel in letting people believe that they're going to die or that they have died. Do you enjoy Lucio as a character? He's he's well done as a go-between, kind of, and as a clown that isn't as clowny. He's this sort of perfect character that I think does exist, where they're this braggart that's always self-promoting, always has a negative word to say for someone else so long as they're not in the room. Mm -hmm. It's so great to have them get their comeuppance. And you know it's coming throughout, yeah, well, he's talking to the Duke and saying, boy, isn't that Duke terrible? What an idiot. And as someone who has illegitimate children. Mm-hmm. But you don't want him to die or anything. You just want, you know, amusing stuff to happen to him. Right. I think that entire bit is very well done. And like I was saying earlier, the entire argument between justice and ethics is mm-hmm. really well written and can be very well performed. And both sides have merit, which is the best kind of argument. This is also a good example of a play where it could easily turn into a tragedy if they just change a few small details. At the beginning of this podcast, I had mentioned that it comes from two sources. He kind of pieced together the ending from another play. The original one had them getting married, the Isabella and the Angelo. I see here that you've heard some news about Richard III's body. Well, yes, uh, supposedly, and they haven't actually confirmed it because they're still doing the DNA testing and such, but supposedly they found uh, what is probably Richard III's body buried under a parking lot in England. So Richard III is the last king of England to die in battle, as I recall. Yes, uh, and there's a whole play about him, actually. Yeah, we haven't gotten to that one yet. Mm -hmm. It's one of Shakespeare's early kind of cruder plays, but... Mm -hmm. It's definitely going to be a good one to do. So is there any particular reason they think this is his body? Was it a battlefield? Is that the deal? As the stories go, or as history, but, you know, 
history is complicated back then. Right. Supposedly, he was killed, but taken from the field and buried in a small temple or church or something. Right. And then no one is really sure where exactly it was. Right. But supposedly, this is one of the places it could have been, and they found a body there that does have a deformity, like Richard III supposedly had. There was an arrowhead embedded in the spine. Okay. There was scoliosis of the spine, making one shoulder higher than the other. Okay. And there were perimortem injuries to the skull, which indicates it was a mortal wound on a battlefield. And the golden crown of a king. That too, that too. <laughs> that, uh, that would help. But they're, they're doing DNA tests, and we'll announce it sometime in the next month or so. Right. This is probably the sort of thing that doesn't go anywhere, but it's a neat idea if it mm-hmm. does happen. That's about all they have on it, but it is a indication that it could be him, and if it is, there are some people who want to confer- give him a full state funeral. <laughs> He was the king of England, I don't see exactly. why not. It does seem unlikely, just based on this little amount of data they've got. Like, mm-hmm. I would give it low odds, but it's certainly a possibility. Yeah. They do have people to do, test the DNA against, at least, though. So. so we'll get the answer. Yeah. Which is always nice. A lot of these historical things, we just kind of get a half guess, and then people say, well, it's our best guess, so we might as well say it's true. Mm-hmm. But this is something where we can actually get data, so that's cool. Yeah, and that's all I have in Shakespeare news. Yep, and I think that's it for the episode. Thanks a lot for coming back to the podcast. We're, again, sorry about being so late about it. Yep, hopefully the next one will come along sooner than this previous gap. I definitely hope so. If you still have any mercy towards us, you could give us a positive review on iTunes. And if you want to talk about what we should talk about next on the podcast, or if you want to respond to us in any way, you can mm-hmm. go to bardcast.blogspot.com. And, of course, we have an email address at shakespearepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.